Hi, I'm Rabbi Rick Jacobs, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing Torah with a Twist. And I love, instead of doubling down on the status quo, that we follow our ancestors into the future by reimagining the Jewish world as it could be. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. So I think you know this about me, but I love to read. Yeah, I, I do know that about you. And I was just curious, do you have any recommendations for a new book for me? A new book? Well, you know, I just started one. Yeah? What are you reading? Divarim. What's that? The Book of Deuteronomy. Was that a podcast Torah joke? A little bit. Well, I'm excited to get started on a new book or a new take on an old story. Let's go. growing up, every summer I used to reread the same series. It was my favorite thing to do, and I used to read the Anne of Green Gables series. I had read them over and over and over again, and every year it seemed that I was taking something new from this beautiful, endearing, lovely writing that really inspired me as a young girl growing up, not in Canada or Nova Scotia, but like realistically in Piermont, New York. Now, what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about today? We're in our fifth book, the beginning of a new retelling of an older story, which is kind of weird. I mean, we're just saying the things that we said before, or maybe we're getting some reflection with a new direction. And so we're really excited to start this week's episode, episode 35, with Divarim, the first Parsha of our last book of the Torah. We are so, so excited and honored to welcome Rabbi Rick Jacobs as our featured guest today, and Rabbi Zach Pleasant as our Q&A guest today. Rabbi Rick Jacobs is president of the Union for Reform Judaism, the most powerful force in North American Jewish life. A longtime and devoted creative change agent, Rabbi Jacobs spent 20 years as a visionary spiritual leader at Westchester Reform Temple in Scarsdale, New York. Before that, during his tenure as the rabbi of the Brooklyn Heights Synagogue, he created the first homeless shelter in a New York City synagogue. He's a tireless advocate for an Israel that is secure, Jewish, democratic, and pluralistic, with a vibrant reformed Jewish community. Rabbi Jacobs has studied for two decades at Jerusalem's Shalom Hartman Institute, where he's a senior rabbinic fellow. Rabbi Jacobs is regularly featured in media outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Haaretz, The Forward, NPR, and CNN, among others. But also, and maybe most importantly, Rabbi Jacobs and his wife, Susan K. Friedman, have three children, Aaron, David, and Sarah. Rabbi Jacobs, Rabbi Pleasant, we are so, so excited to welcome you to the show today. Great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. We're so excited. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. Have you ever had a song just get stuck in your head? All the time. Just like over and over, you listen to it, you sing it, you hum it, and it just follows you wherever you go? Yeah, yeah, that's all the time. That's a little bit how I feel about this week's portion. It feels like I've heard this before. Like, we've done this before, but different? Yeah, this Torah portion really just recaps things that have already happened, but also there's some changes, like some really subtle little detail changes. So what I hear you saying is we might need an episode recap? We just might. All right, what do you have on top for us for this week's Parsha Rundown? 
Hey, what day is it? Good question. It's the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year. A lot has happened since we left Egypt, and now Moses is going to give us some highlights. The Israelites are now as numerous as the stars in the heavens. I think I've heard that before, but I don't remember where. Maybe Abraham has some idea. Now, that's a lot of people, and it's too many for Moses to deal with all on his own, so he comes up with this idea to appoint chiefs in each tribe to deal with the smaller things so that he can focus on bigger stuff. I thought that was Yitro's idea? Weird. What happened next? A lot of walking all the way here. Where's here? Right outside of the promised land. What's it like over there? Well, we sent in some spies to find out. Twelve of them, one from each tribe. They brought back good fruits and stuff and reported that the land was good, but that you don't want to go. I'm not sure that that's how that happened before, but just go with it. Anyway, the people really didn't want to go and got mad at God because they were scared of entering the land where people were living that would fight them off. They said, why did God bring us here just to die? Well, for their lack of faith in God, that's exactly what they get. The entire generation is barred from the promised land, cursed to wander the wilderness, following God's cloud of smoke and pillar of fire. Two people are exceptions, though. Caleb, son of Yefunah, and Joshua, son of Nun. Good for them. The people responded that they would go and fight as God commanded, but it was too late. God was not in their midst. But because the people in the Bible often make bad choices, they fought anyway and got all but wiped out by the Amorites. Nice going, Israelites. So what did they do? They kept walking, following God's instructions, sometimes fighting, sometimes not. There's a lot of battles and some insertions. This is a confusing portion with a lot of names and people and places. The Israelites won a lot of battles with God's help, and they took many cities and kingdoms and land and stuff, all of which was apportioned to the tribes and the people. So now we're we're ready to enter the promised land, led by Joshua son of Nun. We've seen all the battles behind us and how God helped us, and so we know God fights for us when it's time to fight. And that's Parashat Devarim. That was awesome. Just truly awesome, Gabe. Love it. It's a great portion. There's a lot, there's a lot, uh, a lot happening. Yeah, could you just repeat that again? I, I think I got most of it. You were mind just doing it again. I loved it. <laughs> Well, from live in the URJ Kutz Camp Library to live on this Drinking and Drashing Tour with a Twist podcast, I am so, so excited to be with my friend and my future colleague, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, this evening. Rabbi Jacobs, if people don't know, and not everybody might, what exactly is the Union for Reform Judaism? What is it they do? Great question. Um, first of all, great to be with you, Amanda, Gabe, and Rabbi Pleasant. The truth is, the Union for Reform Judaism began in 1873, founded by Isaac Mirawise, as uh, the umbrella organization of Reform Judaism here in North America. Along the way, we actually changed our name from the Union of American Hebrew Congregations to the Union for Reform Judaism, and we are a collection of almost 850 congregations, 15 overnight camps, a social justice institute in Washington, D.C., social justice work across North America, and uh, currently, according to the Pew survey, in just the last couple of weeks, uh, we're the largest movement in Jewish life. Uh, around 2 million people identify with the Judaism that we love and that we lead. There's a lot that goes into your work leading such a massive organization, and an organization that's so important to so many of us, myself included. What would you say inspires that work? Where do you get your drive, your inspiration? Well, to be very honest, I got that inspiration really from my own awakening in Jewish life, personally, where for me, during my college years, being Jewish began to matter really intensely. And it fueled my desire to become a rabbi 
and to find my place in helping to very much revitalize Jewish life. I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, and frankly, the Jewish life that I experienced, other than camp and nifty, and then a year studying as an undergraduate in Israel, was underwhelming. And yet I had tasted something so powerful and so life-transforming for myself. I said, this is what I want to do, and I want this to animate Jewish life. So it's been really a galvanizing uh, part of my rabbinate, which is to fuse the personal with the professional in very um, kind of everyday ways. So when people are trying to figure out how they want to do Jewish, and for us, this podcast is a lot about lifting up the diverse ways that people choose to do Jewish. What does that look like in terms of Reform Judaism? I mean, like, is it uniform? Is it completely united? Does everybody do things the same way? No, and and I'm not sure we ever did. Uh, But the truth is today, what gives us our strength and our dynamism is that we actually are a very diverse and a very open and evolving religious community, which is, I think, what we were meant to be always. But it's, it's absolutely the case. We have some wings of the movement that are very traditional in their practice, others that are less so. We have people who are politically more conservative and some who are more progressive. We have the diversity of how God created us in all of those magnificent ways. And I think that the key here is we find strength in our diversity. Homogeneity does not actually uh, lead to a dynamic religious world. So we love the variety. We actually celebrate that. It means that we have to learn the muscles of how do we navigate a very diverse and uh, very wonderful Jewish community. And I think it gives us the ability to also live in a wider universe of diversity. So um, I don't think we ever were kind of all regimented and believing the same way and voting the same way and praying the same way and finding spiritual nourishment the same way. And that should be celebrated. That's not something to mourn. I agree with that. I wanted to talk to you about something that happened recently, which brings in, I think, a little bit of the personal and the professional, as well as just trying to understand what it is that makes Reform Judaism so special. I was, for the first time, part of a, quote, Twitter battle, end quote. And what happened was we were tagged in a tweet that talked about a prior guest saying, we don't think that you'd be able to define Takun Olam without looking it up. And our response to that was really interesting. And we said, first and foremost, you know, we understand the animosity because it comes from Mishnah Gitin, uh, which deals with divorce. But realistically, why would you ever say that we shouldn't look something up? If this idea is that we, you know, are about this choice through knowledge, the only way to know something, the only way to learn something is to look something up and to do the work to learn. And so I'm sitting here struggling sometimes because I think people sometimes look at Reform Judaism as the religion that doesn't know. And I'd like to see or talk about what it might look like if we talked about Reform Judaism as the religion that's always willing to learn. Well, I I certainly agree. I think this notion that somehow you're supposed to have at your fingertips everything that Judaism means and has ever meant is, first of all, to undervalue what the vibrancy of the Jewish tradition is. And I think that we're the community that not only wants to always learn, but actually rethink and reimagine. So even something we knew you know, 10 years ago, why assume that that's exactly what it must be today? So I think that, you know, rather than the ossified notion that a religious tradition is on my bookshelves, it's in my hard drive, it's, it's kind of there, 
in some kind of pristine form. That's not Reform Judaism. Reform is to belabor the obvious. It's a verb. It's something that is continuously happening. So I think for those who want to freeze Judaism, want to hold it and not let it grow, change, adapt, it actually is a way to uh, not just limit, but I think ultimately undermine the whole value of what this tradition has meant. And I celebrate, as you do, that reform is this process that, you know, not only can we go look something up, we can look it up and question it. You know, this is what the standard ruling notion is. But you know what? That's actually not what it was and not what it should be. So we are the ones who question as well as learn and are unafraid to question anyone's take on that tradition. One of the descriptions of Reform Judaism that I've heard from teachers, from rabbis, from peers, from colleagues, is this idea that Reform Judaism is a continuation of prophetic Judaism. This idea that the prophets not only reacted to Torah and to what came before them and to tradition and to law, but also to the world around them and spoke up when they saw things that weren't quite right. And in a lot of cases, changed what Judaism looked like because of those new contexts and those new ideas. I'm curious how you see Jewish values specifically and Jewish tradition and Jewish history support this idea of constant reform and constantly looking forward. I think you can't actually argue against that. The Jewish tradition could not be alive today if it hadn't been reinvented over and over again throughout the centuries. The most obvious moment is the moment of the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 of the Common Era. Literally what we knew to be Jewish life in every way, shape, and form came to the end with the Temple and the loss of sovereignty. And frankly, the rabbinic masters reinvented what Jewish life could be. And home became critical. Synagogue, not temple. And there's never been a more radical reinvention of Judaism. And to think of what happened in the Middle Ages as well. So this idea that somehow, you know, reading back into the biblical narrative, you know, that this patriarch or this matriarch prayed and practiced Judaism in some way recognizable to us is simply you know, wrong on, on, on every level. And so it begins to be a mandate for us to recover that mantle of change, of growth, of sometimes radical change, and sometimes, you know, catalytic change. But if we don't, uh, we will not be able to, to lead our people and our tradition into the next moment that we're in. And frankly, we may already be behind in that effort. And I see that polarity sometimes in the Jewish world, that there are those who want to simply kind of hunker down on the status quo and say, this is going to be the way we're going to keep the Jewish people alive. We're not going to change anything. And we see that that was a response to modernity, and it was very flawed. So we're, I think, able to not only practice this, but to share it out and to say, you know, let's see some of those changes rippling through. We're celebrating a year of Sally Prezan's ordination. Look at what happened in the conservative Orthodox rabbis, right? Women identifying Orthodox rabbis. This is extraordinary. So some of the changes that people fought us on now have become, you know, obvious and they've become embedded. So we have to have the courage of that conviction. And every major change I believe in Jewish history has always been met with resistance. That should not scare us. That should not stop us. 
but it means that, um, you know, I'm particularly thinking about, you know, when you're in rabbinical school or cantorial school, very often that's when you think the most bold, innovative thoughts about what Jewish life could look like. And so I'm excited always to learn from you and learn from the, the voices that are crying out for a Judaism that matters exactly in this moment. Can I just add one thing to that, which is that it's such a perfect answer for, for where we are and what we need and why the reform movement is so important. But I also think that this kind of radical change and these radical moments of reforming Judaism didn't just happen in history. They happen even within our Tanakh. Like even in a couple of weeks ago, we read the stories of the daughters of Zrafachad who took something that was, stood up because they believed it, it didn't work for them now in this moment, and everything was changed. And that was radical and completely antithetical to what had come before. So this idea that Reform Judaism is this radical change, this has always been happening, not just in history, but even in our sacred texts as well. A hundred percent. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you for that uh, beautiful example. It's embedded everywhere. In fact, the part of this week's parsha that I love the most, one phrase in one verse to me, has that absolutely in front of us. So I don't know if I'm allowed to just quote from this week's parasha, of course, the first parasha in the book of Deuteronomy Devarim. In the opening chapter, in verse 6, you have this amazing phrase. We're told, Rav lechem shevet bahar hazeh. Enough dwelling in this place. Go, get out of here. Move forward, grow, change, experience. Stop being stuck in this place and in this moment. To me, that is Jewish life. It's exactly what we're talking about. And what is the danger? First of all, it's in the Torah. It's not just in the Tanakh. It's right there in the, in the Torah. And what is the dilemma? The Jewish people are comfortable. They like being at this mountain, this Har, Chorev or Sinai, whichever one you want to use, same place. They love the comfortable. They love the familiar. They frankly, don't want to leave that. They want the status quo. But they're told the point of Jewish history was not to camp out here, but to move forward, to experience, to be risking, and to be um, ready to encounter that which will await us. And I just think we're in a moment like that, too. There's so many in every generation who say, this is Jewish life. Just don't mess with it. Just hold it preserve it. Synagogues should look this way. This is what rabbis and cantors always should do. And I think the Torah in that beautiful phrase is saying, no, 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 no. That was always the danger, but that's actually not what it means to be on a spiritual journey. You actually have to go out. And it's as if the Jewish people have to be pushed out of their comfort. And I think today, we who call ourselves leaders of the Jewish people have to also push Sometimes doesn't make us the most popular people, but sometimes we just have to really make sure that we don't become locked into this particular moment. And I think that, you know, what it means to be a rabbi to me has always meant being a change leader. And that doesn't mean just changing for the sake of changing. It means being open to what a moment will require, what a moment could be. Annie Azen, who's this brilliant leader in our reform movement, she's our vice president for strengthening congregations. She stood on the bema of the biennial in Chicago in 2019. She put up a slide. She said, these are the three core ways that people tend to lead. There are the improvers, the people who want to just like make things a little bit better. 
Then there are the transformers. Those are people who want to really move around. And then there are the disruptors. They literally change the way we think and do everything. And she said most people, she asked people, where would you put yourselves? Most people, again, most presidents of synagogues, probably most rabbis, cantors, educators, um, executive directors, put themselves more in the bucket of improvers. But you know what happened at the beginning of the pandemic? The, the, the weight of all the balance was thrown off. People who were hunkering down on the status quo, who were improvers, said, you know what? If we're not going to a, a more radical type of change in this pandemic moment, we will be irrelevant. So they wanted to learn how to transform, do some of the holy work in different ways. And we also, I believe, had more disruptors. I think that there's a natural tendency for leaders and probably for those who participate in religious life and Jewish life to love the familiar and to take what's comfortable, uh, what's not going to rock the boat. And what we know, I think, from our history is when we take that stance, we will not only be unprepared for what's unfolding around us, uh, we will be unable to meet those challenges. So I just love in this historical, quote, historical narrative, which is not a factual narrative, it's already a midrashic telling of that journey, that they remember the moment when they had to get pushed out of Sinai. I love that. Because that wasn't the story back in Exodus, right? They didn't have to get pushed out. But Deuteronomy seems to already know the Jewish people pretty well, that it's going to take some Herculean efforts to get the Jewish people to move out and move forward. And I think we're in one of those places where it may be right now with the pandemic helping to push us out of that which has been familiar into that which could be is an exciting moment. I love all of that. And I'm sitting here thinking about realistically how much it aligns with our Torah portion, which I know that you just ran down for us. But even going back to the beginning of your words, when you talked about this idea of leading from behind, really when the next moment is upon us and sometimes we're looking forward, but know that we may not be able to keep up, what that looks like for our current leaders, whether they are improvers or disruptors or even transformers, it, it's an interesting place to be looking ahead, but having to stay still in the moment. And I'm curious what that looks like in terms of your leadership, uh, especially of the, the URJ, and what it is to see ahead and how Torah portions like this can inspire you to make decisions even without the foresight of what might come next. Well, I, I think what we know probably from our own lives is sometimes there isn't a path. You know, sometimes there's a worn path that you can just follow, but a lot of times in life, it's just, you know, either forest or, you know, open field and you got to find your path. I do think, you know, I, I think particularly back of Rabbi Alexander Schindler, Zichno Livracha, blessed memory, in the late 70s, Rabbi Schindler was paying attention to Jewish life and interfaith marriage was already becoming more of a thing. And the Jewish community was really feeling like this was going to be the end. So the Jewish community is doing this to interfaith families. Stay away. You know, this is not going to be your place. Rabbi Schindler said, what in the world motivates people to do that? This is a moment to embrace. Now, can I just tell you what happened when Rabbi Schindler inaugurated outreach? The loving inclusion of interfaith families in Jewish life. Was he cheered? Was he cheered in the reform movement? Was he cheered in the wider movement? No, people said, this guy has literally lost his bearings as a Jewish leader. He's going to lead us over the cliff. This is going to be the end of Judaism as we know it. 
And I'd love to remember that story because Rabbi Schindler would tell us that, you know, he didn't do it because it made him immediately a very popular and celebrated leader. He did it because he believed deeply it was the right thing to do. Over time, he has been proven right. Now, uh, up to the most recent Pew survey, people would say, this has transformed Jewish life. Think of our rabbis and our cantors. Think of our temple presidents. The notion that you could start your Jewish journey outside of the Reform movement, outside of Judaism, and find your way to the very front of our people. This is a powerful, now true, transformational idea, and it started out as an agitation. You know, sometimes we're doing things at the URJ and, you know, people say, well, I don't know about that. And the truth is, for every great, bold innovation, there are a lot of flops. There are a lot of mistakes. Mistakes not in that you tried it, but it didn't turn out to be effective. So, you know what? Let's learn a lesson. Let's move into a different modality. But I do think the idea of being bold, being as strategic as you can, following your core commitments, Rabbi Schindler's predecessor was a guy named Rabbi Maurice Eisendrath. They asked him if he wanted to buy a summer camp in 1952. Maurice Eisendrath said, what are you, why would we have a summer camp? What's that about? You know, we don't do that. We're synagogue based. We have synagogue. And they said, well, you know, it's a pretty cool idea and you don't have to pay for it. We already got the money. So he thought, all right, you know, let's, ha let's, have, a, let's have a summer camp. So that's when Asrui was purchased in Economowoc, Wisconsin. Turned out to be a pretty great thing. But at first, Rabbi Eisendrath, who was an unbelievable visionary, he didn't actually see the real benefit of that. But he, over time, became convinced this was a major and powerful way to transform Jewish life. And again, there are all these examples. Why do I tell those examples? Because what are those things today, right? The things that may turn out to be transformational, but they're unlikely to be, you know, celebrated today. That is what leadership has always been, to be able to have a principled and strategic view of the world and be willing to, you know, take heat for something you believe deeply is right. And when it turns out not to be right, you, you say, okay, good lesson. Glad we did it. Let's learn and let's move in a different direction. And what I love about that, what I love about that idea of moving forward and pushing on without fear despite opposition is that that, again, is really echoed in our Torah portion. The very last line, the very last verse, don't be afraid for God will fight for you. Not even God is with you, but God will fight for you. And I think that that's like a really incredible statement, this idea that God not only sits on the side of justice or on progress or on uh, what is good, what is right, but that God is fighting in some way. Um, and whether or not we believe in an active God in this world, there's something really important about that idea. So before we move on, I want to give you the opportunity to make your own call to action, your own statement. Um, if there's one thing, one nugget of wisdom that you wanted to pass on, that you wanted your listeners to hear, what would that be? So I, I think what I would most want people to hear is what I most deeply believe about Jewish life, which is change, personal change and growth, 
critical. You can't be alive and be a person of Jewish commitment if you're not willing to grow internally yourself, grow and change our community, and then that piece of changing the world. Change, change, change. It's all about change. That's what life is. Even God, you know, yud hey vav hey. You know, I will be who I will be. God is also in the ever-changing, evolving, growing. And I, I just would, you know, say, obviously, reimagining what Jewish landscape looks like. It's got synagogues, it's got other institutions. We have ways in the last year and a half, people have connected via technology in ways that they would never have experienced Judaism only in person. So again, how do we do that? And then most importantly, the Haftarah for this particular Torah portion that's always right before Tisha B'Av is such a corrective about changing the world. You have this unbelievable first chapter of Isaiah, where Isaiah basically beats up the Jewish people and says, you know, your new moons and fixed seasons fill me with loathing, right? Your holidays, God says, don't mean anything to me. They are a burden. I cannot endure them. And when you lift up your hands, I will turn my eyes away, God says. So what's the call to action in Isaiah, which I believe is the call to action for us, and it affects who we are personally, it affects who we are communally, and it affects the whole world very beautifully. It says, wash yourselves clean, put your evil doings away from my sight, cease to do evil, and here is the good part, learn to do good. Devote yourselves to justice, aid the wrong, uphold the rights of the orphan, defend the cause of the widow. Change, change, change. If we're not changing, we're slowly losing our humanity. If we're not also shaping our communal institutions, what does the Union Reform Judaism look like? Not what it looked like to Rabbi Isaac Merwise, I can be sure of that, and not to those who will come after. What does synagogues look like? What, what is the rabbinate? Where do we do our holy work? And if we're only busy internally inside ourselves, inside our institution, and we're not thinking about how we make a more just, a more compassionate, more whole, more equitable world, what are we doing? What are we so busy with? And when we do all three together, not only do we change, does our community change, the world changes. And that, I think, is our call to action. It was, and it is, I hope it will always be our call to action. You know, with all of this talk about past leadership, current leadership, and future leadership, it is my pleasure, my privilege, my honor, my happy place to introduce our Q&A guest for this week, Rabbi Zach Pleasant. Rabbi Zach Pleasant was ordained by Hebrew Union College in May of 2021. He graduated from Indiana University with a double major in Jewish Studies and Political Science, not necessarily the business degree from Kelly School of Business that I, you know, got in my MBA, but certainly I would not have been able to keep up in political science, so we'll battle that out another time. He worked at Manhattan Central Synagogue as a teacher and song leader before beginning his rabbinical studies at HECJR. That's right, you heard it here first. He is a triple threat. While in school, he was privileged to be the intern at Woodlands Community Temple in White Plains, New York, and he is the new assistant rabbi at Temple Israel of Westport, Connecticut. Zach, I am so, so excited to pass you the mic for this Q&A section. Thank you. It is so exciting to be here. As they say, longtime listener, first time caller. Um, so I'm so excited to, to be a part of, of this podcast. And what an amazing conversation we've had so far. And it's been it's made me think a lot 
So I think, Rabbi Jacobs, we should just jump jump right in. So a lot of what we've talked about, and especially the way sort of you ended, was about bold action and dynamic change and the need for more of a sort of disruptor type of leadership. And I personally 100% agree, and that, that's often where I try to to focus the kind of thinking that, that I want to do. But I often am struck by sort of the conflict of these two pieces of advice that I've been given that often feel like a new two pockets way to go about the world. One is, if it ain't broke, break it, which is sort of this disruptor. We need to move forward and find new things to do. And the other, the other piece of advice, which I, I value a lot, is the metaphor of the, the U.S. Navy ship that is so long that it takes days or weeks to turn. And especially as the leader of a movement that encompasses almost 800, 850 congregations of various religious observance, political leanings, and, and, and you name it, how do you sort of balance those two sides of change leadership? Beautiful framing, and I love that, again, the two pockets, right? The, the, these, are, these are polarities. And I think that one of the frameworks that I, I bring to it, having been a congregational rabbi for 28 years, having really worked on liturgical worship change, change in terms of religious learning and all the ways, one of the, the things I think I've learned in doing it, sometimes too fast or too assertively or too boldly, that I didn't feel the pain of change from my community. And I think loving our people, even the ones who I remember when I became the rabbi of Westchester Reformed Temple, and, you know, guitar was not something that was ever on the bima. And it still had an organ that was very much in use. And I just remember the first times, you know, cantors and rabbis were we're playing guitar, not just for one little folk piece. And I just saw the faces of these founding members who were classical Reformed Jews who said, okay, that's bold, but you've just eviscerated the, the, the experience I have of Judaism. So how do we do bold, but do it lovingly and boldly? I think that is the two pockets for me. It's easy to do one of those. If you're too busy with the loving part, you're not going to change anything because you're like, oh, oh, Mrs. Schwartz didn't like that. I, I saw her face during that, uh, that new liturgy where we included the names of the Imahot, the, the mothers along with the fathers. Oh my God, she did not look like a happy camper. I cannot even fathom what she's going to say to me at the Oneg. But that's the only thing that I'm thinking we're cooked. But if I'm just bulldozing through and not feeling the way in which people also, we're all trying to hold on to real embers of truth and of beauty and of holiness. And so I think that, you know, for a move, yes, we're like the battleship that takes a long time to turn. And I think that the truth is we have to be bolder than we may be comfortable with for something as large as the reform movement to stay relevant and stay current. And it starts, you know, you're going to be at Temple Israel and Westport, phenomenal congregation. You have fantastic colleagues. And, you know, I think the tendency is to just, you know, let's just take a little some baby steps. I think we, we also hear the call of those who came before you said, no, no, take a bigger step, Zach, Zach. No, that's the right. Go, go further, go, you know, more wholeheartedly. But I do think that we also have to know that some of what we're changing too is actually something that may be very old. It doesn't have to be something was invented an hour ago. Some of what our, our movement now has embraced are things that actually were very traditional. And people say, what, what happened to the reform movement? It used to, you know, now everybody's wearing kipot and tefillin and talis. My gosh, what's happened? And the answer is sometimes what's, what's needed 
is not what's brand new, but actually what comes from a part of our experience. So I just think that's the countervailing and the counter forces. And I learned it by doing it in community, not on a larger canvas, but to do it on a larger canvas, you can't just throw a little color up. You gotta, you gotta take out a real handful or a gallonful and put it up on the, on the canvas and then mold, respond and change. I love that. And I love the sort of the, the succinct charge of, of be lovingly bold. I think that's, I'm going to write that down somewhere. I love that framework. What sometimes happens to me when I look at Torah portions is that I get stuck on the title of the Torah portion or the first couple of words or the first verse. And so I've spent a lot of time this week thinking about words and the, the idea of words both because it's the title of the Torah portion, that's the title of the of the book, but also because that's effectively what all of Parshat Devarim is. It's just words. It's Moses speaking. I am someone who is profoundly moved by the power of words. I think words have an incredible impact on the folks in our community. Um, our liturgy loves the power of words. We talk about the power of words all the time. Baruch Shemar Olam, right? The, the, the world was created with words. And with power comes great responsibility. And when you have when you have words, they are just as dangerous to be used. So my question for you is, you talked about the phrase, you know, enough dwelling, go, go do this. Words are incredibly important. And this is another sort of balance question. But how do you balance the importance of leading with words? And when is it time to get up and go to the place and do? I, I love it. First of all, for rabbis, cantors who spend our lives singing words, speaking words, interpreting words, this is our this is our our happy place. Oftentimes, and I think that um, you know, I think we sometimes can get lost. I remember I gave a sermon in 1995. Uh, I was inspired by the uh, then president Bill Clinton, who said he's going to end welfare as we know it. So I gave a sermon on ending religious school as we know it. And I gave the sermon, and I, I thought it wasn't a bad sermon. You know, I, I kind of liked it. And afterwards, this longtime chair of the religious school committee came up to me and said, so what are you going to do? What, what's the plan? What, what? And I like going, man, I just gave a sermon. Like, did you, did you hear the sermon? I, no, I, I heard the sermon. You called out. You got me awake. What do you want me to do? And I was thinking, like, I actually am not, I'm not there yet. And luckily, Sarah Lee and Issa Aaron from the Rehearsed School of HUC in LA began this project called Experiment in Congregational Education. We became one of the test sites. But the truth was, I was so caught up in the words and the preaching, I wasn't the activist that I needed to be like, oh, here are the four things we're going to do when we get up from the pew this Rosh Hashanah. And I think that, you know, there's this phrase, ready, fire, aim, which is a play on ready, aim, fire that becomes a watchword of change in, in my own career. Ready, fire, aim. Now, what is the power there? You can never figure out all the things, articulate the whole strategic plan, pull every citation, articulate it. By the time you do that, it's irrelevant. It's already old. So how do we be bold and act and not just talk, right? Because I think we rabbis, I'm certainly guilty of it. Ask my three kids, you know, dad at the dinner table, nice sermon. We, we, we were actually thinking about, you know, going off and doing something now. I think the, the balance of speaking and acting oftentimes gets tilted in Jewish life towards talking. And I think we also need experiments and we need to start doing differently. And then 
kind of feeding back on what's different about it. New models of membership, new models of, you know, what it means to be long in a community. What does it mean to be a lifelong learner? Again, start creating facts on the ground. Start doing differently. And I think that is part of what Moses, he, he was pretty good with the words, you know. Look at, at Devarim. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? These were just some of his memorable ones. What were the bad ones? You know, I don't know. Maybe he didn't have any. But the truth is, I think it's too easy in a culture that venerates books for the people of the book to get completely lost in the words. And they must be goads, literally, that propel us to act and to be and to try and to do and then to reflect and then to refine and then to move again. I love that. I often, a barometer for myself is that I want my words to impel people and not compel people, that they should be moved internally. They, they want to to act based on based on the words. I think that's that's great. My last question, particularly as we're talking about words as a call to action, how words can be a call to action. I think you have a unique role in that when you speak, you're not speaking just for you. And that I in the last 2 weeks I'm dealing with when I speak, it's not just me, but it's also my congregation. But when you speak, you're speaking for a movement and a movement, as we've said, that is a big tent. And and one of the reasons the reform movement is so great is because of that big tent. But how does the fact that you speak for a movement of Judaism impact the way you're able to communicate effectively, um, both on a a small scale and on a larger scale? Yeah, thank you, Zach. That is something that I think never, ever leaves my consciousness. You know, if I tweet something, which again is a, a little mini you know, statement. I don't ever think that I can give a personal opinion. I have to always imagine what are people going to hear if I say that, right? So it makes me very humble in what I choose to say. It also makes me selective about what I don't say, because to be truthful, I don't express an opinion about, you know, the annexation of the West Bank. We actually have a process. We have, you know, a lot of people, we have resolutions, we think those things through, we debate, we refine. And very often when I'm talking about something controversial, I really be careful to talk about what we collectively have affirmed. But I also know that, um, you know, there are times where I say exactly what I meant to say and it it lands differently than I intended. I also think, you know, as as religious leaders, we can also, you know, do a little al-chet shechatati. I'm very sorry for the words that I did not intend to be hurtful. You know, I take it as a great you know, responsibility to speak on behalf of more than myself. And, I, and listen, I got a letter just last week from somebody who said, you know, you said this. I don't agree with that. How could you have said that? So I responded by saying, you know, the truth is I can't ever speak unanimously for the reform movement. I can't always speak unanimously for myself because I might have thought something differently a year ago than I do today. But I think to be able to say what we say with respect for alternative views, unless we're calling out something like genocide and then we're not actually going to say, you know, there are those who have a very thoughtful view of genocide. But on most of the things we speak about, there can be a modeling of a variety of views. Here's how we land. And I think if we can learn to speak with strength, but also with humility at the same time, it lands differently. Even if, you know, someone's going to hear that and say, that's just not what I think. I'm going to leave this reform movement. I know that's happened, but I also know that it also has been a magnet to people who are looking for a Judaism that has some of that backbone. If we're only saying things that everybody already agrees with, we're not saying anything. Having backbone doesn't mean being arrogant or being aggressive with it. But I do think that, um, you know, it's a responsibility that 
that weighs heavily. Even when I, you know, I get up from a restaurant, I'm walking out and someone says, what do you think of the restaurant? I gotta be careful, you know. I don't want the URJ to be saying, this is a good restaurant, this is a bad restaurant. I'm not making light of it. It's a very serious question. I actually think that as a pulpit rabbi, uh, Rabbi Pleasant, you're gonna feel that not just in your first couple of weeks at Temple Israel. I think you're gonna feel it every day. And there are times when you may, in fact, be able to carve out and say, this is what I believe. It may be different than what my senior rabbi believes or what my cantor believes. That actually models divrei Elohim chayim, that there are many different ways to do the holiest work. And I think we're better leaders when we don't have a triumphalist view that our way is the only way, or even within a movement that has that diversity. As you said, we've got to lovingly embrace that diversity even as we have a backbone to say things that will not be universally celebrated, that's our job. Believe me, Isaiah was not a popular, Jeremiah probably was the least popular guy in antiquity. So I think if we you know, want to be in the world where everybody loves us, I think being a religious leader is probably not the, uh, the place to be. But if we want to do holy work that helps shape a more just, compassionate, and equitable world, we're doing exactly what we're doing. I hope you have even a fraction of the satisfaction and joy that I've had in my rabbinate, in your rabbinate. And I love that you were just ordained. You know, this is what it's all about. It's about people choosing leadership. Sometimes it's professional, sometimes it's a volunteer leader. But to get out in front and take a community with you, that gives me hope and excitement for the Jewish future. All right, it's time for Midrashic Mixology, that time where we make a drink based on our weekly Torah portion. So this week, the sun is rising on a new day and Israel is finally ready to enter the promised land. This is a time of growth and renewal and hope for the future. But before we do, we sum up what we've already done. So for Parashat Devarim, we give you the summary sunrise. Just to be clear, that's summary as in summation, though it is the summer and this is a summary cocktail. Glad we cleared that up. Start by filling a Collins glass with ice and pour two ounces of orange juice for the fruit the spies brought back from the land of Israel. Next, two ounces of tequila for all the mistakes the people made while in the wilderness. If you don't understand how tequila relates to mistakes, then you've never had tequila. Next up, and here's where we deviate from the traditional tequila sunrise, two ounces of lemon seltzer, both to bring a little sour to the party and for the sparkle of all of those stars. Finally, for all those bloody battles, carefully pour half an ounce of grenadine either down the side of the glass or over the back of a spoon and let it settle to the bottom. For a non-alcoholic version, swap out the tequila with two ounces of lemonade. For either version, drop in some pomegranate seeds for the land of Israel and garnish with a maraschino cherry for Moses, who will sink to the bottom and stay behind, and an orange slice for Joshua on the rim to guide us forward. L'chaim. That was just unbelievable. That was worth, you know, journeying across the desert for 40 years just to hear that and say L'chaim. Unbelievable. Love it. I love it. So speaking of maintaining our, our leadership and our composure in our present and our future, it's time for thank yous and closing cues. We've, we've gotten to that section. We're moving towards the promised land of this podcast. So Rick, Zach, Gabe, Idan, and Divarim, we begin Moses' retelling of our story from his perspective. What stories, books, movies do you return to time and time again that inspire you? Rick, we'll start with you. 
I have a ton of them, but I'm just going to think thematically from our discussion on the podcast today. And it was shortly after I was called to this new role as the president of the URJ that I said to my oldest son, let's go to the movies and you pick it, you pick it out. I mean, whatever you pick. And, and my son said, as long as it's not going to be about Judaism or Reformed Judaism, I want to just take you to something that just gets your head clear and we'll just have some fun and it'll be great. I said, perfect. So he takes me to the movies. I don't know what we're going to see. We get there. It's Moneyball, which is this great movie, which is all about leave this mountain, change, change yourself, change your community, change your world, because it's about reinventing baseball, which the quote is change or die. So I, I, we walk out, I go, wow, that was really amazing. It gave me so many ways to think about the URJ. And my son said, that wasn't the point, Dad. But I think about, you know, those narratives that aren't simply uh, fun, but they help to articulate deep longing. And obviously the book of Exodus is the deepest narrative of the way we think about change. But I love that movie Moneyball. Whenever it comes up on a late night uh, station, I'm watching it because it reminds me how to rethink baseball, rethink synagogues, rethink religious life, rethink everything, make it better. And if we don't, it's a, a kind of lost opportunity and sometimes it can even be death. Thank you for that. Zach? I also have a couple of um, books and movies that I that I come, come back to over and over. The first one that comes to mind is Mitch Albom's Have a Little Faith. Um, it's a story about Mitch Albom, the, the sports writer, who never joined a synagogue when he moved to Michigan. He would fly back to New Jersey every year for the High Holy Days, the conservative synagogue in New Jersey where he grew up, and he would go to temple with his parents, and that was it. That was his connection to Judaism. And uh, his rabbi said to him, I want you to do my eulogy. And he was sort of floored. He didn't feel particularly close to the rabbi. And he agreed to do it. The rabbi lived another 10 or 12 years after they started meeting. They started meeting and having conversations. And the book is about his relationship with the rabbi, the rabbi's life story, and then concurrently uh, the story of a priest and how the two lives, or really three lives, intersect. And it's a book that I first read in college when I knew that I wanted to be a rabbi, but was sort of doubting what came with it and if I was ready for all the things that came with it. And it has been a book that I return to again and again because it reminds me of the incredible impact that we have as rabbis and cantors and Jewish leaders, personal impact uh, on a small scale and how that ripple effect can have as big an impact as anyone could possibly want. So that book continues to inspire me, and I'm continually fueled by it every time I go back and reread it. Um, I read it again the week of ordination as sort of like a final push for for uh, inspiration. For me, the thing that I keep going back to again and again, I've watched it so many times the whole way through, more than I'd care to admit, is The West Wing. It is the best TV show ever made, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise. But the reason that I keep going back to it is twofold. The first is that it's comforting. It's this idealized vision of what America and government could be at its best. And the characters are flawed. They're real people. They're not real people, but they're they feel real because they have these flaws and these deep issues that they need to work out. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. In a lot of ways, that actually really reminds me of Torah, of these characters, of these people who are deeply flawed 
and yet still an idealized vision, yet still an example. So I love The West Wing, and I will talk about it anytime, and my dream guest on the podcast is Richard Schiff, so if you know him, let us know. He done. So I am a big nerd, I'd say, is probably a great word to, to describe me, whether that be about tech stuff or video games or the kinds of shows and movies I watch. But um, I'd say in general, I could say comic books and movies and TV shows based on comic books are things that I come back to a lot. And it's interesting because those kinds of stories are, you know, those characters and those stories have been around for so for so long and new ones are continually being written. It's very easy for stories to sort of repeat themselves. On the baseline, that's the baseline that's like really, that could be, that could be seen as boring. But I think it's very interesting how different writers can reinterpret characters and reinterpret how the same characters might approach different situations and how they might change. And I don't know, I, I find that very interesting, whether that be with the decades-long slew of Marvel Avengers movies, or if it be different iterations of DC comic book characters. There's so much out there, and I, I really enjoy revisiting different iterations of those things. I really appreciate that. Uh, for those that don't know, I had never seen a Marvel movie, and Gabe has been walking me through them in the timeline order. And as of the recording of this podcast, I've made my way up to Guardians of the Galaxy. So I've watched a lot over a long weekend. But I'm not going to talk about comic books. Uh, I'm going to actually bring in music because I like to be different as a rabbinical student. And I was thinking about Broadway musicals, which I love. And I listen to a lot of songs from Broadway musicals. And one song that is beautiful and I always replay whenever it comes up on my iPod classic shuffle. Thanks everyone for cheering that. I really appreciate your support. Is Audrey McDonald's Stars in the Moon. It is a beautiful song where she really talks about the ability of all these people that she meets in her life to give her experiences and beauty in the world and appreciation for what's happening out there and travel. And a lot of the time she she says like, yeah, but I won't have the security that I need. I won't have a yacht and, and I won't have champagne if I, if I go with you and I, I won't have all of the finer things in life. And it ends uh, where she really thinks about her priorities as she gets married to a very wealthy man who gives her all of the things that she wanted. And it ends with her saying, and I thought, okay, and I took a breath and I got my yacht and the years went by and it never changed and it never grew and I never dreamed. And I woke one day and I looked around and I thought, my God, I'll never have the moon. And I think about that a lot in terms of prioritizing really the, the beautiful things that we can appreciate in life but also remembering that moons wax and wane and they may differ and our goals for shooting for the moon may change and differ as we grow and as we continue to understand what leadership means to us. And realistically, that is a conversation I get into a lot with both friends at HUC, with congregants, with my CPE cohort, shout out to New York Presbyterian, Wild Cornell. And I think these conversations are important. Rick, Zach, if people want to continue the conversation with you, how can they find or follow you or your organizations? Zach, we're going to, you know, switch things up a little bit and we're going to start with you. Sure. All of my contact info can be found on Temple Israel's website, tiwestport.org. Um, and I'm happy to continue the conversation with anyone. Incredible. 
And Rabbi Rick Jacobs, how can people be in touch with you? URJ.org is the whole list of things. You can find me on Twitter, URJ President. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram, Rabbi Rick Jacobs. And uh, love to hear from people and continue the long conversation that uh, has been going on for centuries. Let it continue. Amen, amen. With that, Rick, Zach, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? This was great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, really grateful. Grateful for the podcast, for the thinking behind it, and the way in which you tackle these uh, subjects. This is how Jewish life is going to unfold. Really, kola kavod to, uh, to all of you. Look forward to listening to the podcast going forward. Thank you so much for those kind words. Thank you to Rabbi Rick Jacobs for all of the inspiration and different ways of thinking about leadership and what that might look like. Thank you to Rabbi Zach Pleasant for asking the hard-hitting questions and not admitting that his favorite TV show to watch over and over again happens to be, you guessed it, The West Wing. Thank you as always to Gabe and Edan for not only understanding that I will almost always forget to introduce them in the introductory segment of our podcast, but never forget them at the end. And thank you to all of you, our listeners. It has been a pleasure and we can't wait to celebrate with you. Gabe and Edan, I really loved what Rabbi Rick Jacobs had to say about three types of leadership, this idea of improvers, this idea of transformers, this idea of disruptors. So Gabe and Edan, if you had to identify as one, what does that look like for you? Are you an improver, a transformer, or a disruptor? I'd like to think that I'm a disruptor. Like, I'd like to think that I'm somebody who, uh, you know, looks around, sees something wrong, and says, yeah, that's wrong. I'm just going to change that. I'm just going to disrupt the system. But I think that that's an ideal. I'm not sure that I always hit that mark. I think that in different contexts, I'm a disruptor. But in other contexts, I say, no, I respect the system or I respect this person. And I just can't bring myself to move in that way. Idan, what about you? It's interesting. When he, when he was describing the different ones, he you know started with improvers. And I was like, oh, like I feel like that could be me sometimes. I walk into a situation and I think, oh, if we tweak this to be a little bit this way, it could be more efficient. If we make little tweaks here, improve things there, make things a bit more efficient in general. But I feel like sometimes when I get more comfortable in some environments, I unintentionally start to become a disruptor, I think. I worked retail before the pandemic, and it was at a store that I'd worked also at in uh, Chicago before I moved to New York. And already being familiar with how the store and company worked a bit, I felt probably a little too comfortable to just start suggesting to the manager, oh, what if we do things like this? What if we do this? What if we do this? All tech-wise, and we can maybe improve the efficiency of how things could work, maybe. And we started working together on some things, and he was like, oh my gosh, you should try to present these to the company. And I was like, I would love to. And it didn't happen. But that's kind of how I am. I, I walk into a situation and I, I kind of assess the situation and see how things are done and see what I can do to maybe make things more efficient in general. I think that you've really done that for us with regards to this podcast and making sure that every time we record, we try something new, whether it's working in breakout rooms or realistically just trying to record in a new and different way or coming up with a random joke, which... People don't know, Idan also adds his flair to the podcast sometimes when it comes down to our Torah rundowns or Midrashic mixology puns. I think for me, I'm still trying to figure out where I belong, whether I'm an improver, whether I'm a transformer, whether I'm a disruptor. 
even Gabe, when he was trying to pinpoint where I was on the spectrum, went, no, I changed my mind and went back and forth between a few. And I want to say, I think that I may be a combination of all three, depending on the day. But I think realistically, I'm going to add a fourth level. Sorry, Rabbi Jacobs. Hopefully it's okay with everyone else. I think I'm a connector. I think when it comes down to it, I like to improve things. I always want to leave a place plus one better than how I found it or make someone's day plus one better than it may have been before I was in it. In terms of transformation, I really believe in being the change that I want to see and trying to see how we can totally reinvigorate and revitalize what we're dealing with. And in being a disruptor, I mean, look at what we're doing with this podcast. This is something that we dreamt up and and we're putting it out there and it's a little bit different than what anyone's seen before. But the way that I play with those is in connection to the community that we're building, our listeners, you, our audience, our friends, our family, our village. And that makes me really excited, especially with regards to this episode and especially with regards to this tour portion, this idea of leading from behind, in the center, in the future. What that looks like is tricky, it's terrifying, but it's also terrific. And I'm really excited about it. I think that's really true, and I think we're at a really exciting time for those changes. One of the things that the pandemic did, with all of its trials and tribulations, is that it gave us not only the opportunity, but the the impetus, the push forward to change and to make really drastic, radical changes in the way we do things. And some of those changes are wonderful, much-needed things that will be with us for a long time. I'll raise a glass to that. L'chaim. 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 I'm Rabbi Zach Pleasant, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing Torah with a Twist, and we're here to be lovingly bold.